Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Expanding Economics. My name is Sophia, and thank you so much for joining us again. So for today's episode, if you're a previous listener, you may notice it's a bit different. In the past few episodes, uh, I've been focusing a lot on having guests on the show and hearing their perspectives. However, being that it's summertime, it is a bit more difficult to get people for interviews. So I decided that instead I would spend some time sharing some work that I've done in the past. For today's episode, I want to share a parts of a paper that I wrote for a class called Economic Sociology. I took this class in April 2022, or in the winter semester of 2022, with Professor Axel Vanderberg. And for those of you who don't know, economic sociology is essentially a branch of sociology that studies specifically economic phenomena. And it arose very much in protest to the neoclassical school in economics that was taking the economy to be very much this this two-dimensional place of consumers and businesses without taking into account all of the social processes and context that these things are situated in. So economic sociology looks at how things are produced and consumed, how markets work, how money works, but with the idea that we are social actors embedded in a social context and that this social context affects our decision-making we are not just individual actors within it. For this class, we um, had to write a research paper, and I decided to write mine on cryptocurrencies. And I decided to write it on cryptocurrencies, not so much from the perspective of, you know, are they going to be the next big thing or not, but more from the perspective of what does it tell us about the nature of money and what does it tell us about the social process of adopting a new form of economic process. Uh, just a preface, this is by no means a form of investment advice or um, a prediction as to what I think is going to happen with the price of various cryptos. That's really not my place to say and not really what I think is significant um, here. Uh, so in part one, I'm going to talk about what is money and kind of review the academic debate surrounding that. In part two, I'm going to talk about alternative currencies and their political foundations. And in part three, I'm going to talk about cryptocurrencies, how they fit into this story, and some of the paradoxes that arise within them. I think looking back on this paper now, after everything has happened with Sam Bakeman fried and Coinbase, it's very relevant and it's a little bit on the nose at times. And I think it's a really useful way to help us understand kind of what happened there and why, why it played out the way it did. So yeah, I hope you enjoy. My name is Sophia and you're listening to Expanding Economics. Part 1. What is money? So although 
we all probably use it in our daily lives and it's almost impossible not to use in your daily life it's not very often that we stop and think about what exactly money is how it works or why it works the way it does so i want to start with just kind of outlining the foundation of what has been said about what money should be and this within the academic debate there's generally two sides of the camp and this is those who argue that money should just be a unit or is just a unit of account and by that just it's just a means of keeping track of things and the opposing side is the idea that money is in fact a social process so i'm going to start with the first side which originated with the classical economists george simmel and max weber they saw money as homogeneous, socially neutral, and a tool for rationalization and calculative behavior in market. Karl Marx also had some words to say about money and believed that it should very much be linked to physical commodities. And this arises from this evolutionary understanding that markets emerge from humans' predisposition to exchange. Marx's theory of money are also really important for understanding crypto later on so i'm just gonna explain his famous money commodity money prime circuit essentially the idea was that capitalism's internal logic is to expand and it does this by rationalizing things by commodifying things and it does this through making putting a value on them and once you put a value on something, you can make more of it and you can make it more valuable. And this is how the money commodity, money prime, money makes money circuit works. Later on, the economists after them uh, continued to run with this idea of money as a unit of account. Um, so the new institutional economics emerged, I believe in around the 60s or 70s, and they saw money as a tool that a lot evolved alongside markets to solve efficiency problems such as transaction costs and lack of trust in larger social networks, similar to what Marx said about our natural predisposition for exchange. Though there began to be a bit of disagreement in the 70s between the Keynesian school and the monetarists as to who should make money and who should control it. The Keynesians arguing that the state should intervene in the money supply and the monetarists arguing that the state has no role. From this monetarist school, a very important scholar arose named Frederick Hayek, and he's often cited as the theoretical root of cryptocurrencies with his book, The Denationalization of Money, The Argument Refined, published in 1990. In this book, Hayek argued that money in itself is a commodity and thus should be created by private actors who have it compete in the market in order to be adopted. You may be able to see how the remnants of this theory in the idea of crypto where there's thousands of currencies on a market exchange in which people should buy and trade and sell in order to drive the price up. All these scholars kind of fall into this idea of money as a unit of account. However, both Simmel and Hayek did kind of in this attempt laid the groundwork for the alternative school, which is that money is a social process. And what I mean by this is Though Simmel thought money was rational, he also recognized that it is tied to institutions and the state, which very much arises from social processes. 
And not only this, but Hick, although he claims he thinks of money as a rational tool, does kind of hint at this idea that it's something that is created by people and then the collective kind of has to choose whether they adopt it or not. Both of these theories are hinting at this idea that, yes, individuals use money rationally, but only within a larger social context. And this is kind of similar to a more contemporary scholar Mark Gwenevetter's theory of embeddedness, which is that as social actors, we are embedded in a social system. And the social system does not entirely constrain our actions, but shapes our decisions. This kind of leads to the alternative view, which is that money is a social process. A really prominent scholar in this field is Vivian Zelizer. And in her book, The Social Meaning of Money, she argues that defining money simply as a unit of social account greatly reduces it and fails to account for all of the social interactions that take place with it. For example, money is not, according to her, homogeneous or socially neutral. How you spend money is dependent on its source. Think about how you might use gift money differently than your income. Not only this, but who uses money greatly alters how it's going to interact with other social institutions. For example, gender and race can play into how money, how one allocates their money. Zalazar kind of argues that there are actually different types of monies. And because of this, Though it may be used as a tool of rational calculation, it cannot be isolated to the market and must be influenced by culture, morality, and social rituals that give it its meaning. This is interesting when we think about crypto because it's the diverse array of different types of currencies means that its intended uses can be a lot more niche. Not only that, but its open access wallets and transaction histories tell us where it's coming from and what it's been used for. So it can further influence how we differentiate good versus bad money or just kind of where it fits into our social understanding of things. Though crypto also does pose some challenges because while once you may have seen the person that you're interacting with and who's giving you money and this may affect your perception of it or how much you value it, the anonymity of crypto and Bitcoin kind of takes away some of these social meanings. So it makes it a little bit more difficult to disentangle their sociality and makes it slightly more rational. Overall, though, it's really hard to even say if crypto and Bitcoin can be considered money because not only is money officially defined as a unit of account, but it's also seen as a store of value and an accepted medium of exchange. But as we all know, Cryptos don't store value terribly well as they're so volatile, more like a stock. Though it's interesting because despite this, many people still do recognize that it's valuable. So it kind of pushes this idea of does money have to be a store of value and how consistent does this store of value have to be? And does it really have to be linked to anything for people to believe in it? Whether, as I mentioned at the beginning, whether we really consider Bitcoin as a form of money or not may not be as important as understanding why it emerged, when it emerged, and what this tells us about our social, political, and cultural context. And to better understand this, I kind of want to turn to alternative currencies more broadly and what they mean. 
Part two, alternative currencies, not a new phenomenon. It's important to consider the fact that Bitcoin and crypto are by far not the first form of alternative economic practice to challenge the status quo. And in fact, all forms of money have at some point been new and alternative. And there's been many other examples of contemporary examples of new forms of currency or movements that challenge sovereign currency. To understand the rise of Bitcoin and crypto, I believe it's useful to look at the other alternative currency movements that have arisen and under what context this happened. Probably the most the most well-known case of this could be the rise or the transition from the gold standard to greenbacks in postbellum America. This case is very interesting because it kind of illuminates very well the larger debate around money, which is, should it be a unit of account linked to a physical commodity, or should it be allowed to be solely a social process managed by various institutions? Back in the era of the just after the Civil War in America, this debate played out where the bullionists wanted to preserve the gold standard in order to prevent inflation. But on the other hand, the greenbackers were arguing that money is really just dependent on a collective belief and for therefore should be managed by democratic institutions. Two scholars, uh, Cathars and Bab, have studied this debate in depth and have come to the conclusion that the reason that the greenbackers won this debate was because of the timing. They argue that new forms of money almost always occurred in times of political instability and that this is because the political instability causes people to question the nature of their financial system. In the context of a stable political environment, people took the gold standard as natural state. But after the instability of the civil war, this taken for grantedness was questioned, and it opened up an opportunity for a new form of money to emerge. This argument ties really closely to a lot of Foucauldian discourse, which very much says that money has a sort of disciplining power to it. And because of this, whenever there is a alternative money movement, there is also some sort of micropolitics to it. And this micropolitics is often very utopian. Essentially, alternative currencies are often challenging a form of power. And because of that, they're liberatory and a form of resistance. It's often the case that these sort of utopian ideals believe that democratizing the economy through a monetary reform leads to social change. Scholar Peter North has kind of examined this with other alternative currency movements such as the LETS in England, Green Dollars in New Zealand, and the barter system in Argentina. He points out, in each of these cases, a subaltern group created this new form of currency in the face of some sort of financial crisis. And that when they were rooted in activism and had people committed to building the network, they became successful. North also argues that these movements have more of a chance to be successful now than they did in the past because democratization means that movements are no longer oppressed as they used to be and because neoliberalization and globalization has deregulated financial markets and made these things possible. All these examples are relevant to explaining crypto because there's this dominant narrative 
that is in fact cited in the original piece of literature on Bitcoin, Nakamoto's white paper, that it's the 2008 financial crisis that caused people to question the legitimacy of banks in the States and kind of was used as a motivation for this new form of economic practice to be adopted, one that would eliminate these intermediaries. This narrative lines up very well with the Foucauldian discourse on micropolitics and also on Cather's and Bab's explanation of why the greenback succeeded in the face of political instability. And I think it definitely does have some truth to it. However, I also think that we cannot take such a neat and simple story to heart and need to remember that there also is a lot more nuance behind this. In my view, I think rooting Bitcoin solely in the events of 2008 is a bit reductionistic and kind of too similar to this a priori view of new institutional economics that economic practices simply emerge to solve efficiency problems. Because if we're to believe this idea that 2008 eroded trust in financial institutions, then we need to go beyond 2008 because this financial crisis was a result of decades of political and monetary decisions made during the neoliberal era. When we look at the language of Bitcoin, we can see that it can actually be traced to the postbellum era. There is frequent language used such as mining and rigs, which kind of draw this nostalgia for a commodity-based value. We also can't forget about all of the prior technological innovations that Bitcoin and crypto have been based on. Once upon a time, the monetary system was very physical, but with the rise of internet and ATMs, it became digitalized. If we go even further, decades of cryptographic research and this prior history of fintech that people already trust makes the transition to digital currencies and crypto possible. So we cannot just reduce, as, as nice as it is to pack the story of the rise of crypto into this neat little box of the 2008 financial crisis, we cannot simply reduce it to this. It's much more nuanced. It's tied back to the neoliberal era more broadly and technological and social changes. However, what's interesting to me and I think confusing to many is why then, if we believe this story that Bitcoin came as this sort of utopian, libertarian movement after the 2008 financial crisis that aimed to decentralize the financial system and remove intermediaries and give everyday people more control over their money. Why then did the recent crisis with Coinbase and St. Brakeman Freed happen? Why then did all of these centralized exchanges and mining facilities start to emerge? This is the question that I want to tackle next. Part three, cryptocurrencies, revolutionary social movement or business as usual? Thus far, I've talked about how this simplification that Bitcoin and crypto arose and should be adopted as a consequence to the 2008 financial crisis is reductionistic 
and doesn't fully capture the nuance of the social history and technological innovations that preceded it. I also slightly touched on the fact that this narrative that once again, Bitcoin and crypto is meant to decentralize the system and give power back to the people is slightly contradictory in retrospect to the events that we saw unfold over the last few months with Coinbase and other centralized exchanges. And this is what I want to build on a little bit more. And to truly understand the paradox that arises here, it's important for us to draw on the theories that I kind of have outlined so far in regards to the sociology of money and the literature on alternative currencies and their political origins. With this, there's a few things I want to point out, and this will relate to the debate on whether money should be neutral or in a unit of account or whether it's social. It's also going to go back to um, the politics of the libertarian and utopian um, ideals surrounding Bitcoin and the neoliberalization that led to the 2008 financial crisis. And finally, I'm going to bring back Marx into the discussion and talk a little bit about why exactly we saw the crypto industry kind of replicate the insane volatility of the stock market and the financial world that led to 2008 in the first place. We've identified that the language used in the Bitcoin white paper kind of draws on this medalist nostalgia for the gold standard. And the idea of having a fixed supply once again brings us to this ideology that money should be a unit of account that is based off of a commodity. However, we have also established that money, in fact, can also be seen as a social process and not just a thing. So while the first crypto advocates may have dreamt of a libertarian utopia where money is separate from social institutions, it's this political ideology behind it that makes it inherently social. Not only this, but the 2008 narrative also insinuates that Bitcoin emerged as a pushback from the neoliberal deregulation and privatization that led to the 2008 financial crisis. However, We've also pointed out that it's precisely this deregulation and financialization that allowed for Bitcoin to gain traction as an alternative currency in the first place. This idea that preaches for the decentralization of power and elimination of intermediary institutions. Once again, there's a huge issue with this because Bitcoin and crypto have just not lived up to this promise. As the industry evolved, its own social hierarchy emerged and its own wealthy techno-elite along with it. And this has started to occur long before the creation and downfall of Coinbase and other exchanges. Since 2021, the network dynamics of Bitcoin mining have shown that there's been an increasing centralization through the creating of mining pools um, mostly due to the increasing power, energy, and computing that's required to mine Bitcoin as its supply uh, decreases. So 
while it may have been true that in the beginning, Bitcoin decentralized, was a more decentralized system, when we look at it over time, in fact, it's evolved more towards a core and periphery model similar to the traditional banking systems. What's also really interesting to think about is how the initial groups that were once the target of Bitcoin and the libertarian ideology, i.e. the large financial institutions and institutional traders, have now worked their way into the ecosystem. Huge corporations like Facebook and JP Morgan have launched their own cryptocurrencies. Venture capital funds have flocked into the industry. And some nation states have even begun to make it a legal tender. Others are adopting their own, not crypto, but digital currencies that very much function are intended to function in a similar way. So now that these huge players have come into the field, it's increasingly difficult for people to buy into the original libertarian ideal that incentivized its adoption in the first place. And as more people have come in, the politics of the movement have also become less homogeneous than they once were, when it was just a small group of cyberpunks on Reddit advocating for it. Despite this inherent contradiction, though, people still continue to believe in Bitcoin. So why is that? First, I want to start with the financial traders and institutional investors who started putting money into it. Why would these players invest into something that was originally intended to displace them? One explanation may be that after the re-regulation of the financial markets in 2008, it became a lot more difficult to make profits. The volatility of cryptocurrencies presented opportunities for huge returns. And this can also extend to the general population. When we think of the decades of stagflation and low interest rates that we've been experiencing and how difficult it's become for younger generations to make profits through investing their money, we can understand why some people may be attracted to the higher returns and risk levels presented by the crypto industry. As these new members and stakeholders and actors have entered the ecosystem, they bring their beliefs along with them. And while at first glance this may be considered problematic for its creation and adoption, scholars Cowan Lustig argued that, in fact, it is this diversity of actors and their discordant values that push forward the construction of the larger blockchain infrastructure. See, infrastructure projects often have a common problem, which is that there's not always a clear idea of what exactly the end product should be. Different stakeholders are needed to come in and negotiate different ideas as to what the final standardized and mass adopted product should look like. Alexander Kinney uses Granovetter's theory of embeddedness to explain that this negotiation means that all of these stakeholders have now embedded themselves into this new money system. And through embedding themselves and negotiating, they begin to discover its value. What actors may or may not realize is that while they're negotiating their values, they've also become advocates for the system because they have to find new sources for value for the currency and solutions to the challenges that arise in building the infrastructure in order to continue defending their position and to gain from it. 
It is exactly the conflicting ideas as to whether Bitcoin and crypto are valuable that makes its adopters more embedded in its system and proliferate it. And it's exactly this dynamic and this process of negotiation that has resulted in blockchain and crypto turning into a system that differs so greatly from what it originally set out to be. When these stakeholders don't manage to crystallize their original imaginary and can no longer defend their position based on this imaginary, they have to begin to search for an alternative pathway. And these alternative pathways slightly dilute the original vision of what the infrastructure should be. What uh, Newman and Zhang call this is imaginaries branching. And they say that it, it results in a system eventually branching into a new context that has an existing infrastructure already built. However, they note that when this occurs, the new infrastructure will begin to internalize some of the features of the one that it branches into. And Cow and Lustig have applied this argument to cryptocurrencies. They explained that as crypto began to flow into the territory of the financial industry, which it had to do in order to reach the general public, it began to come into contact with the capitalist system. And this means that it inevitably internalized some of its logic. And now, because of this contact, the imaginaries and narratives that support the adoption of crypto and blockchain have turned to be more oriented around the possibility of increasing efficiency, um, new possibilities for accounting, and the possible commodification of objects that have not otherwise been possible. And this is very interesting because um, it brings us really back to a full circle moment of the Marxist critique against alternative currency movement. Just to remind you, the foundation, the political foundation for most alternative currency movements is that monetary reform can lead to larger social change. But the Marxist critique of this is that once alternative currencies expand enough so that they come into contact with capitalism, they transform to simply reproduce its power imbalances. And I think this, um, I think the case of Coinbase and its downfall really serves as a strong empirical example for this dynamic. So in this episode, I've covered a lot, I think. I've talked about money as an abstract concept, the debates that have surrounded it within academia, and how these debates have played out in various contexts and political currency movements. And I've kind of tried to tie each and every one of these theories and perspectives into the case of cryptocurrency, blockchain, and kind of the different social contexts that it has been a part of everywhere from the 2008 financial crisis to the recent crash of Coinbase and um, other exchanges. Like I said in the very beginning of this episode, I didn't approach this research with the intention to say whether Bitcoin and crypto will or will not be the next big thing or whether it's a worthwhile investment. 
but rather with the idea that it is an interesting case of a new form of economic practice being invented and being adopted and being disputed over and it gives social scientists from all disciplines a really interesting case study to observe many dynamics that have been theorized about before um, but now with uh, amplitude of hard empirical data to back up their theories with and I think that the discipline of economics can greatly benefit from using other disciplines such as sociology or political science or anthropology or computer science to help uh, support building further theory and understanding how monetary systems work and to what extent they should be regulated. So I really hope that um, this has been a useful episode for everyone. If you would like to follow up on any of the sources or any of the information that I spoke about in this episode, I will attach an open access link to the paper I've been reading from in the description. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Sophia and you're listening to Expanding Economics. Thank you.